I mean, all the while just kicking and thrashing around like a, a trapped fish. And then eventually I, I got my legs free and got out. And the last thing I saw was my paddle just disappearing into this whirlpool and, you know, and never to be seen again. Hey guys, uh, my name is Jack and welcome to the inaugural episode of When It Hits The Fan, the brand new podcast brought to you by Battleface. It's very exciting to be kicking off the first episode and I thought I'd start by giving you all an idea of what we're about. Over the coming months, we're going to be talking to some of the world's most fearless adventurers about their hairiest moments on the road. That means uh, expedition leaders, around the world cyclists, war reporters, photographers, record breakers, really anyone who's spent time in high risk destinations and found themselves in a really tricky spot. And to kick things off, we've got a fantastic first guest in Leon McCarran. For those of you who don't know Leon, he hails from Northern Ireland and is a writer, a broadcaster who's worked for the BBC, Radio 4, National Geographic, just an all-round adventurer really. Uh, his achievements are probably too long to list here, but include traveling more than 35,000 miles by human power in the past decade alone. And that means walking a 1,000 mile loop across the Holy Land, 3,000 miles across China. In 2019, he led an effort to design a long distance hiking trail in central China. And he's currently working on a similar endeavor in Iraqi Kurdistan. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Um, so, Leon, you know, I became aware of you through the uh, Iraqi Kurdistan walking trail project. Is that still ongoing? Yeah. What's happening with that? Yeah, absolutely. It's on a, a hiatus as the entire movements of the world are um, at the moment, but we will be back out scouting more trail. And currently, uh, I mean, we're aiming to, to create the first long distance world class hiking trail in Iraq. It'll be um, so far, just under 200 kilometers across the Kurdish region in the north, and we hope to expand it over the next year or so. And so plenty more work to do, but uh, it, we're making good progress, and it's just the most, as you can imagine, from that part of the world, huge depths of history, so much um, culture, faith, natural beauty, hospitality. It's it's a wonderful place for it. Absolutely. But uh, as I understand it, then your your story of kind of when it went south traveling is not in Iraq, but it's actually in uh, Iran. Do you want to set the scene for us and kind of tell us, you know, what you were doing there? And uh, if sure, yeah, I mean, I'll preface it by saying I was a little younger, and if it's even imaginable, more sort of stupid than I am now. <laughs> and I um I set off to Iran in 2014 to follow the longest river in the country from source to sea, which is a river called the Karun. And it starts way up in the Zagros Mountains on the flanks of a, a peak called the Zard Ku, which is about 4,800 meters, something like that. So we started our journey, two of us at three and a half thousand meters and followed this river um, all the way down to the Persian Gulf. And it's, it was a wonderful way to see uh, that Western parts and mountainous part of Iran. And it took us six weeks or so, um, and we started in winter and, you know, had all sorts of adventures. We were remarkably unprepared. We actually thought we were reasonably prepared, but a, a river expedition in Iran is not an easy thing to pull off. Um, 
and uh, we we'd had a few hairy encounters already before we got to a beautiful but quite fast flowing section of the river um, you know sort of uh, the coming into the end of the, the top third of the river and it'd been very hard to get any advanced information so we we really didn't know very much about it but we knew we'd go into these big deep gorges and you know once you're in those we were in these inflatable pack rafts uh, once you're in those there's no way out except with the flow of the water and um, we scouted as much as we could but there were a couple we went into and they were pretty hairy and at one point I remember uh, diving around this corner and just seeing all sorts of very aggressive white water that I was definitely not qualified to be heading into my little plastic boat. Um, but you know, you can't just stop in the middle of a river. Uh, so I was carried down towards it and I, I, I think actually before I got to the really nasty part, I made a mistake on a simpler part because I was obviously over, overly anxious about what was coming up and I ended up getting flipped in my boat and, um, and then pinned against a rock with a, a whirlpool and I was underneath water for about 30 seconds which uh, isn't long in the real world but when you're under the water with yeah. your feet and I had these big boots you know, sure. yeah. oh it's it's a lifetime you know they, you the first half of it was spent um, trying to figure out how to get out and the second half was as they say uh, the cliche of having other moments of life kind of flash before your eyes yeah, yeah. very and I mean all the while just kicking and thrashing around like a, a trapped fish and then eventually I, I got my legs free and got out and the last thing I saw was my paddle just disappearing into this whirlpool and you know and never to be seen again and I, I'm not sure what forces of the river um, and currents were going on there but they were very nasty and and then my friend Tom came along behind and uh, I sort of swam down river a bit and got out and we were pretty shaken up and I was now um, in another cliche of being quite literally up the creek without a paddle and um, we had to figure out what to do so we managed to paddle both down in Tom's boat for a while and scramble out onto hillside and we were really in the middle of the countryside and uh, the, the very first car that we managed to flag down was a taxi driver called Mehdi, who thought it was hilarious that this had happened to us. Um, but over the course of the next two days, looked after us, took us to his home, fed us, introduced us to his family, and amazingly took us, drove us about three hours to a little village somewhere else in the mountains that had a little shed with uh, a paddle inside, which was a not to the nice carbon fiber collapsible paddle that I'd started with, but it was a paddle. And um, I think I paid the pricely sum of about 10 quid for it, and uh, which is about three times what it was worth. And um, and got back and uh, we, we skipped that section of the river. We went back to where I'd fallen out and we portaged and walked past it and um, rejoined somewhere a little bit less um, hairy. I mean uh, the temptation must have been there to be like okay I think that's my paddling days over for this trip and you know this, this yeah walking or whatever it was yeah I mean to be honest it was the only way to do it because if we hadn't I might have just uh, you know I've never gotten it gotten in a boat again yeah and I mean also just logistically there was following the river not on the river itself was quite hard we'd have to go you know through quite rugged mountainous terrain and um, yes, yeah, so we kept going. And you know, now I look back on it as 
a wonderful lesson to myself to not be so careless because it was a very, um, it would have been such a silly, I mean, uh, I don't like talking about uh, potentially dying on trips. And I very much try to avoid that, but it would have been such a silly way to get dangerously injured or, um, or to die because there was no need to be in that situation. So I've, I've learned quite a lot from the sorts of risks I'm willing to take from that experience. And I also, uh, in my hour of need, I found people who were willing to drop everything and look after me. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that in itself is a very worthwhile experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from my time traveling, this is something I've found time and time again, that wherever you are in the world, I mean, of course there are, you know, there's always a certain segment of people maybe who don't have your best interests at heart, but you can almost always guarantee on just, you know, the kindness of people who you will never see again to sort of see that mm. you're in trouble and, you know, do their best really to kind of get you out of trouble. Um, yeah. And from what I've heard, kind of, you know, Iran is famous for that, really. The levels of hospitality there are just absolutely incredible. And, you know, people, you know, they, they care about you and they want you to get out safety of the side. And, uh, you know, yeah. it, it does kind of restore your faith in, in human nature, really. It really does. And I, I was, you know, I, I wished it hadn't necessarily happened in that way. But that experience has now been cemented in my mind as one of, you know, great kindness in the midst of something that could have been much more horrible to remember. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, are, are you a more experienced or proficient kayaker now? Was Is this something that if you were going down the same river, you would recognize, ah, okay, this is not a part of the river we want to go through? Or, you know, or was it one of these incidents? Well, okay, yeah, in hindsight, you can say it was a bad idea. But actually looking at it, you know, you wouldn't have known it was uh, potentially deadly. Yeah, I think there was just no way for us to know. You know, there, there wasn't any information available. We spoke to some people who do some whitewater kayaking in Iran beforehand, and they said there are sections that are quite, uh, you know, intense, quite high grades, sort of grade class four or five, um, which is above my skill level. But we also hoped that because it was late winter, early spring, that the, the, the river wouldn't be as full and it wouldn't be quite as um, fast flowing and so on. So um, I haven't got any better at kayaking. Um, I'm still the same as I always was, but I, um, in most places you can find something that suits your level before you head off down a river. And we were, you know, we were more interested, uh, maybe blinded slightly by our desires to explore and have fun on the unknown of the river. Yeah. And we, we maybe overlooked the risk of, um, of being somewhere that was, you know, tangibly dangerous. Sure. But I suppose, you know, that, that, that sense of risk is something you're much more aware of now, uh, you know, in terms of putting yourself in these situations and, you know, taking a second to think, well, actually, you know, once you have an experience like that, which just sounds absolutely horrifying, um, you know, you come out of it the other side, I guess, a kind of smarter traveller. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing. I, some of the, some of the, attributes that I've developed for my for working um, and for traveling have come out of making terrible mistakes and you know being very fortunate to not have more long-lasting impacts of those things and so it, it's an odd thing to think about because I, I um, you know I would never recommend that anyone else goes off and makes terrible mistakes it's better to get things right the first time around but yet if you do and if you're lucky enough to come away from those things um un, uh, unharmed then actually they they quite often shape you 
Um, and so these days, you know, I've, uh, I'm much better at mitigating risk. I think risk's an integral part of travel and adventure and a lot of most exciting parts of work, but it's, it's, it's risk with awareness. It's not going and doing something completely daft because, um, just because you can. Yeah, absolutely. Wise words. Um, obviously, uh, Leon, you're a very keen hiker. I could kind of list the amazing walks you've done, whether it's across the Holy Land or across China. And I know you've done many more, whether, you know, on bicycles or, or, or kayaks and all the rest of it, which are obviously not on foot. But um, mm -hmm. we wanted to hear from you your top three essential items that you would take on a, on a hike. So the things that, you know, you've either been on a hike and gone, I really wish we had this right now, or you've mm -hmm. you know, consistently taken with you on every hike because you know at some point you are going to need this particular thing. So uh, what have you got for us? Yeah, well, I mean, hiking because you're much less likely to fall out and get trapped in a river. I think that's one of the glorious things about it. Um, but I, the, there's two things that I think are absolutely essential and then one thing that I'll suggest and, and leave it open to interpretation. But um, the first thing for any uh, long walking, hiking journey is a very strong and comfortable pair of boots, which might seem very obvious, but um, when I first started doing long walking journeys, I was given this advice that, you know, whatever budget you have, spend it primarily on boots because those will be the things that will either take you where you want to go or cause you more suffering than you've ever known in your life if they're not right. So I, I always just make sure I've got a very good pair of boots, um, which may not necessarily be the most expensive ones, but just the ones that fit the best and are broken in suitably and, you know, that you really know well before you set off um, to cover a fair old whack of miles or kilometers. Um, and the second thing connected to that is a very comfortable backpack or rucksack, because equally that is something that will just cause untold suffering if it's not right. So I, those two, everything else, you know, you can get away with wearing just about, uh, I mean, in most moderate climates, at least any clothing, uh, you know, um, all your other equipment, you can kind of figure out a way around most problems, but good boots and a good pack. Um, that's it. That's the, that's the ticket. Um, well, and then the it's, a, it's the thing which is supporting your weight and it's, it's the, the thing that you're, you know, you're supporting on your back. So, you know, I guess yeah, those, those two things, are, you know, primary, you can experience bad weather, et cetera, but yeah, boots and a backpack, yeah. absolutely. I mean, you know, it's kind yeah. of, you can't really um, try and save too much money on perhaps. No, you can't, you can't scrimp on them. You know, it's, uh, there's other things that you, where you can cut corners, but not those two, in my humble opinion. And the third thing I would say, certainly for me, is I always bring one item which is not necessarily essential to the, the goal of walking, but which I, uh, I guess you could call it a luxury item, which I enjoy and, you know, it reminds me of home and uh, is nice to have something that isn't just totally essential and functional. But I also bring something that I feel is, can ingratiate me to people that I and sort of fun and silly and, and so what I bring is a, a tin whistle you know a little Irish whistle thing which mm -hmm. um, I uh, was yeah, I grew up I, growing up in the north of Ireland I, I could play and you know so I have it and it's um, it's uh, it's a brilliant thing to have because you meet some new people and you know you're all exchanging stories you're getting to know each other and it's very fun just to be able to whip out this tin whistle play a little Irish tune and People either think you're kind of ridiculous or they think it's kind of cool, but either way, it's, uh, 
you know, it's a nice little touch of something different. It makes you unique and makes you memorable. It, it's a nice icebreaker. Um, yeah. And it weighs next to nothing. You know, it's just a little piece of uh, tin. And um, so I, I, you know, not everyone will want to bring a tin whistle, but um, there will be, most people have got something that they yeah. could fit in a backpack that is unique to them. And, you know, just, um, just to something a little bit different when you meet people and remind you of home. Absolutely. I mean, it's not all about surviving, you know, you are going away for the experience, you know, so also taking something which is personal, which brings enjoyment. Like you say, it takes up almost no space and carries no weight. I mean, there's very little arguments against taking something like this. It's also a tin whistle in particular is very good to hide uh, some money inside. You can roll up a few dollars oh, really? and okay. stick it inside the bottom of the whistle. And you just have to remember to take them out before you play it. Otherwise it gets covered in spit. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, things like that are, are wonderful and you're absolutely right. It's not about, uh, unless you're, you know, one of these big hardcore expeditioner people who are trying to attempt some sort of world first across Antarctica or something, you know, most of the time there's room for stuff that makes your life not just uh, um, more functional, but, you know, more enjoyable as well. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us this afternoon, Leon. Um, Pleasure. We will put your details uh, in, in the video description so people can follow you on either your blogs or your YouTube channel. I'm not sure if you have a YouTube channel. I but, do. I don't use it that much. Sort of social media and website and that sort of stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll give your social media details. And uh, yeah, brilliant. Fantastic. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a million. Really appreciate yes. it. Bye-bye. So that's all we've got for this month, uh, but we'll be back soon with more tales of adventures from the world's greatest globetrotters. If you enjoyed this video, we'd love a like below. And of course, hit the subscribe button if you'd like to be notified about the next episode. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks. So we're really excited about bringing you those interviews. But that's it for now. Thanks for watching. Bye bye.